You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Guidepost. Uh, we are joined here with um, a frequent guest, uh, Mr. Mike Woods from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, uh, specifically up up there in New England. Um, Mike has been, you know, uh, leading the charge on shoreline access issues um, in Rhode Island, and they recently had a huge success after you know multi year. Um, campaign to better define where the public has a right to access uh, Rhode Island shoreline. Um, so the governor signed it into law a couple weeks back. Um, Mike, how you doing? Then we can uh, dive into what's in this bill. I'm doing well, Will, and it's it's great to be back here. I didn't expect to be back so soon, and I, I think in the introduction. That's not a bad thing in our world, right? <laughs> no, not at all. And I think in the introduction, you said that that we had, you know, BHA had a big win. But I, I also uh, want to spend a minute to thank you and Tony and, and Peter Jenkins at the American Saltwater Guides Association, because during this initiative, uh, ASGA has been a constant supporter, uh, sort of rowing the same boat that we're pushing, um, signing onto letters, you know, advocacy letters, pushing legislative leaders and ultimately the governor to put this change into law. So it is our win. And there is a, a big group of advocates and individuals that, that have worked to make this happen. And ASGA uh, certainly was part of that crowd. So I do appreciate it. Well, thank, thank you for the, the quick shout out there. And, you know, um, we're, we're only we can only, uh, you know, without public access, we don't really have many fisheries. Not everyone, like we've said in past podcasts, not everyone has, you know, triple outboard center consoles to get everywhere. We, uh, some of us are stuck to the rocks um, and Rhode Island's shoreline is pretty prolific when it comes to surf casting and recreational fishing opportunities. Yeah, we definitely have a, a great community of of surf casters and, and sort of shore anglers, you know, fly fishermen, uh, people that like throwing bait and lures into the surf uh, here in Rhode Island. And so, uh, like you mentioned, um, we do have a minute here to celebrate a big victory from the, the previous legislative session here in Rhode Island, where uh, the governor recently on June 26th uh, signed two bills into law that effectively secured historical shoreline access that has always been protected in Rhode Island's constitution and, and put that into practical terms for people to use moving forward by implementing a new boundary on the beach. So, you know, Mike, what, what is this boundary? Um, and maybe for some context too, maybe briefly touch on um, what that kind of dispute looked like prior to establishing this new, this new boundary zone. Sure. So I'll, I'll talk first about the way that it was before these bills were signed into law. So for the last 40 or so years in Rhode Island, our shoreline boundary has been defined by the ruling in a court case from the 80s. The, the case was called Ibison versus State. And what they said was that the, the boundary for public use on the shore occurred at, at a datum called the mean high tide line. 
Uh, you would find this by averaging a long, you know, 20 years worth of high tides into an elevation and pro projecting that elevation onto the beach. Uh, obviously, the problem with that is that nobody could actually do it. You know, fishermen couldn't do it. People that lived next to the beach couldn't do it. And so nobody really knew where the boundary was. And as a result, uh, the constitutional rights that we all enjoy weren't really secure. Um, they didn't have a defined boundary that, you know, you could never know where you were allowed to be. And so in the bill, uh, what is what has been put into law now, what I'll break it into really three parts, but the most important of uh, the most important of the changes is, is the definition of this new line that we will have moving forward. And, and the bill refers to this as the recognizable high tide line. Um, you might be able to find this uh, by the presence of a line of seaweed or a continuous deposit of shells or debris from the most recent high tide. And, and basically what the public is going to be entitled to moving forward is a buffer 10 feet inland of that most recent recognizable high tide line. Um, it is important. And last time that you and I talked, uh, the two chambers within the Rhode Island General Assembly were in the process of sort of negotiating exactly what this boundary was. And a lot of that went on during the legislative session. So it's nice to be able to talk now about what is actually in the law. Um, one of the things that the legislature was very specific about was that the public was entitled to the most recent high tide as opposed to the highest line on the beach. So, for example, if yesterday's high tide uh, is 10 feet up the beach from today's high tide, the public is only entitled to that most recent line that's a little bit lower. And the nature of the tides is that they do, you know, they do sort of go higher one day and then lower the next day. That can be influenced by the cycles of the moon or it can be influenced by natural factors like the direction of the wind or you know, storms that are offshore pushing more water and things of that nature. So it is important, and the legislature was deliberate, that the most recent line was the one that the public public's access was tied to. Um, like I, I, I don't mean to you know, ask for you to you know, really dive into the brains of other people, but was that kind of like a compromise um, or just like a way to thread the needle or... Um, I, I think it's safe to say that it's, it's a little bit of a compromise, but it really the compromise that the legislature made was to stay true to Rhode Island's judicial history and with a, with an eye towards the likely outcome. And we'll talk about this a little bit later that uh, that the law was going to be challenged in court yeah. as as it might go too far or unreasonably move that boundary inland. And legislators were, you know, we they ran a study commission where they really dug into this issue and, and dug into Rhode Island's legal history. And prior to that court case in the 1980s, there had been several instances where our Supreme Court in Rhode Island had referenced terms like the high watermark. Um, and so staying true to that and making sure that it was the most recent of those high, high watermarks um, was something that, you, you know, they had an eye towards making sure that when a court looked at this, that they felt as though it was a reasonable regulation um, and saw fit to let it stand as the law of the land, as opposed to declaring it unconstitutional for, for different reasons. And, and we'll get into that in a little while. Um, and ultimately forcing the legislature to go back and figure out another way to solve the problem down the road. So it was a compromise, but it wasn't really, you know, a, a for party and an, and an against party that were negotiating with each other and landing there. It was more that precautionary uh, sentiment that the legislators had as they crafted uh, the, the boundary. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
Um, there are a couple other important things that, that the law does, and, and I want to spend a minute mentioning them. Um, one of the constant concerns that property owners brought to the legislature had to do with liability for people that were, uh, that were near their property on the beach. Um, and so there is a section of the law that specifically references uh, a, a, another piece of Rhode Island general law called our recreational use statute. Essentially, what this does is it limits the liability that landowners might have in all but the most uh, sort of severe and negligent uh, conditions. So if something was really dangerous there, a landowner might have some, you know, some responsibility for it. But in, you know, if you sprain your ankle on the beach in front of somebody's house, the landowner isn't going to be liable for uh, that accident that has occurred. Um, the final piece if landowners are like putting trip wires and stuff like that to keep people off, that's probably where that would come up, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, the, the final piece that was included in the law um, was a directive primarily towards Rhode Island's Coastal Resources Management Council, but also with coordinating input from our Department of Environmental Management and the Office of Rhode Island's Attorney General, um, to task them with developing and disseminating educational information and, and guidance for signage at shoreline access locations. Basically, the, you know, the task of educating the public as well as the property owners on the practical application of, of this new law, because not everyone is going to go in and read the, you know, the sort of legal jargon that's in that definition. It really needs to be put into practical terms and then pushed out in a you know a somewhat prominent way to the public so that everyone understands what this change is and people on both sides of the boundary know where the boundary is and what they can and can't do gotcha yeah i i, I saw something um you know before this podcast i was doing some news reading and doing some research and saw that there was like a couple days after the law was signed in there was already an example of uh you know a a landowner beach user conflict um, and the, the police got involved and, you know, pretty much educated the landowner that this new law is in effect. And um, the individual who was, you know, enjoying his right to access the shoreline um, was in, you know, was doing so legally. So that, that's, that's a really interesting situation. And I know the instance that you're talking about and what makes it interesting is actually that that is, the precise location, uh, and in fact, the same individual who back in 2019 was arrested for uh, collecting seaweed on that very beach. And so, you know, we've seen a considerable change in the last four years where, you know, four years ago he was arrested and ultimately he was let go because it was a, a wrongful arrest. And the town solicitor, you know, once he got a look at it, figured out he wasn't going to be able to prosecute trespassing. But that arrest did occur. And then to watch a similar scenario four years ago with this new law in place um, and, and for the police to be, you know, there were police that were on the beach that were instructing landowners on what the new law was. You know, there was a security guard that the landowner had hired. Um, and I believe some of the landowners actually came out. One of them might, maybe was on the phone talking with the police. Uh, but for the police to be there protecting the public's rights, as opposed to bringing, you know, bringing a member of the public into the system and making them defend themselves uh, for what their constitutional rights were, that is exactly the type of thing that we were looking to accomplish in getting this law passed 
and to put an identifiable boundary on the beach that, you know, both the public and the property owners and finally the police could see and help to, you know, sort of deal with those conflicts on site as opposed to bringing people into court and making them fight to protect their constitutional rights. Yep. I know that there are now some, uh, some spots that I've been eyeing on Google Maps that uh, now feel a lot more inviting um, <laughs> than previously. So next big moon cycle, you might see me exploring up there um, in your parts, Mike. Um, but, you know, you can only celebrate, you know, victories so long. Um, also in the news recently, there have been um, some reports that some, you know, uh, landowner groups are kind of banding together to form um, a legal opposition and challenge the challenge this new law in court. Um, do you kind of have any context there that you want to touch on? Like, I know it's, you know, it's very, this is very recent and, um, you know, predicting how a, a court case could come out uh, can be anyone's guess at times. Um, so there's that caveat there. Yeah, it's um, it, it's not particularly surprising to see that, um, that that some landowners have brought a lawsuit against the state over the passage of this law. Uh, it, it's been an initiative that we've worked on for several years, and, and some of the same landowners that are named in the law have been at hearings and things of that nature, sort of threatening the lawsuit should the law pass. So it didn't really surprise anybody that that it got filed. Um, what the landowners are alleging specifically is that under the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, uh, which, which protects some property, you know, protects property rights, um, their allegation is that their property has been taken and the state has not compensated them for that. Um, you know, it's an interesting situation. It's a tough one because the boundary along the shore is unlike any other boundary in, you know, in our, in the context of property law, right? I think about an inland property, you know, I own property, I own a house here in Rhode Island, and it's got four boundaries. You know, two of them are on a street, I live on a corner, and the other one is, you know, from the fire hydrant to a tree, and then it goes from the tree to another tree up at the other street. And if the state were to come in and say, you know, we're going to take the road in front of your house and make it a highway, um, we needed to give up, you know, a couple hundred feet of your property, um, that would be a pretty clear cut case where they would need to go through the process uh, of eminent domain um, and, uh, and compensate at a fair market value for the property that was being taken. They can do that against the will of landowners. And there's a process, uh, like I mentioned, it's called eminent domain. The thing that, that's interesting about the shoreline boundary is that it's not really static to begin with. Um, in the fullness of time, I don't think it takes much of a stretch of the imagination to, to think that entire properties might be gone by no action of the state. You know, you think about coastal erosion and the rising of sea levels. Um, and, you know, these property owners certainly wouldn't bring uh, Mother Nature into court over that for taking their private property. Um, so the nature of that shoreline boundary, even under the previous regime, the mean high tideline regime, it was always a dynamic boundary that moved. Um, even if that long-term elevation of high tides didn't change profoundly, the erosion of sand would move the actual location of the line. Um, so it's always been transient and it's also always been subject to the rights that have been outlined in Rhode Island's constitution. 
Um, these go back all the way to the founding document of, uh, of Rhode Island's uh, Royal Charter. So, you know, there, there, is, there is an allegation. It's not uncommon, and it's happened in other court cases even recently, that boundaries along the shore have been better defined. Um, that is certainly within the power of the legislature to do. And now it is going to be sort of up to the courts to sort that out and figure out if the new boundary is a reasonable thing that the state did or if they really did need to compensate landowners for the movement of that boundary. Um, without getting too much further into it, I, I will leave it by saying that Rhode Island's attorney general is really the leader, you know, on behalf of the people of Rhode Island. This is why we have attorney. There's a lot of reasons we have an attorney general, but one of them is to defend the the public's interests when uh, when the state is brought to court in situations like this one. Um, also named because of their uh, their role, and I mentioned one part of the bill was disseminating educational information and signage guidelines. Because of their in, involvement in that part of the bill, uh, the directors of DEM and the executive director of the Coastal Resources Management Council were also named. But largely, uh, I think we're expecting that the attorney general is going to do the leg, you know, the legal legwork here to define the interests or to defend rather the interests of uh, of Rhode Islanders when it comes to shoreline access. So I, I'm sure that we are going to be hearing more about this. Uh, like you mentioned, it, it is fresh. Um, as we are recording this, I think it was only filed a couple days ago. Yeah. So um, there will be more to come, I'm sure. And, uh, you know. This is something that lawyers and legislators and advocates put a lot of thought into with with a mind towards this eventual legal challenge. So um, where I will leave it is um, is to say that I'm confident that the law is going to stand up, but we will be watching closely and when opportunities arise, we'll be engaging. Yeah. I mean, like, Mike, I think you and I even mentioned this last time we spoke, like the goal, the end goal of this whole issue was to create a durable um definition for you know people to assert their rights on to um and you know my uh very limited um legal understanding and just by looking at you know some of the reports coming out is that you guys accomplished that and that's uh definitely again you know something to give yourself a pat on the back on and you know like you said earlier tons of people were involved not just anglers um so you know, again, a huge victory. And, you know, we, we you all will uh, take that victory and and cherish it. And, you know, when when the day comes to rally the rally, the crew again, you'll you'll be there and ASJ will be right there to uh, lend our support as, as best we can, too. Well, I know um, I, I, I appreciate the kind words and, and we certainly are cel still celebrating uh, getting this through the legislature, which was a big task. But there's a lot of momentum within the advocacy community to continue working on issues of shoreline access. And, and we're all thinking about the next places to go. Um, this law largely focused on what we call lateral access. So once you access the beach, this law pertains to what what you can do there and how you can move along the shoreline. Um, there still is a lot of work to do, and, and some are even working on it already today, um, uh, work related to the designation and discovery of rights of way to the shore. Um, that would relate more to how you get to the beach as opposed to where you can be moving along the beach. 
Um, and, and that's not the only one. There's a lot of other things. And we're sort of thinking about where the next uh, where the next piece of momentum is going to go. And, and we're looking for those opportunities. And like you said, we'll be working there. I know ASGA and uh, and the Saltwater Edge are going to be here supporting us um, and yeah. uh, and right right in the fight alongside us. So for everyone, you know, we're not we don't uh, post the videos of these podcasts too often, but I put on my Saltwater Edge Saltwater Edge hat uh, just for this podcast. Uh, so yeah, everyone, go check out Saltwater Edge if uh, you need to stock up uh, on any gear ahead of that next bite or to. Uh, to enjoy all this new shoreline access that we all have. Um, Mike, thanks again for joining us here. A great in-depth, um, concise uh, explanation as always. And uh, yeah, we appreciate, you know, all the help that, that, uh, that you do. And um, yeah, on to the next one. Right on. Well, thank you again for having me on, Will. And I look forward to chatting with you soon and hopefully uh, spending some time on the water the next time you're up here.